for Native North Americans. Thank you. Do you anticipate that any Native Americans or Native North Americans will find any fault with this picture? Well, somebody always finds fault with something. Like Mr. Chrysler found fault with Mr. Ford, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, somebody will say something sooner or later, but uh, I don't see why. This is one of the few films, maybe, maybe the only film, where the audience finds ourselves rooting for the Indians. <laughs> well, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs> no. no, but do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I quite understand that. But uh, it's um, the thing is about the film. It's not anything to do with changing history or anyone's values. It's showing like relationships between people. Um, there is good and bad in every race and nation of the world. Everybody knows that. But it's uh, it's just people getting along with people. Welcome back to part two of Skoden Cinema. Uh, today we're going to be talking about part two of the 1991 folk horror film Clear Cut starring Graham Greene. And uh, hopefully this little break has given you an opportunity for those of you who are interested to go check out the film. Uh, it is available on YouTube, so if you haven't seen it, head there. And then uh, tell me what you think. Uh, on my recommendation, tell me what you think. So there's really not a whole lot of need, I don't feel, to kind of play catch-up because we pretty much did all of that in part one. And then one more thing, um, I apologize for the lateness of this episode, uh, being a couple of days late. Still learning new equipment, but uh, I kind of got a few of the bugs worked out. And uh, yeah, so uh, apologies for that. But uh, let's go ahead and just pick up right where we left off. Okay, so after like that really intense scene uh, of the sweat, um, we're treated to another little quiet scene of Peter just kind of like washing his face off in the water, um, kind of laying belly down um, on the dock. And the gentle sound of water is kind of like lapping the shore. Uh, that's kind of the, the sound that, that fills the soundtrack. And once again, um, just really kind of calms the viewer, um, you know, right after like a really intense scene. Um, there's always these little moments of quiet and almost like solitude in this film. And I just freaking love this movie so much and because for reasons like that, it's just like perfectly paced. Um, so like there's usually like 10 seconds or so of just calmness before the movie gets rolling again because walking into the scene with his white high top converse is Graham Greene, the man, the myth, the legend. So, what does a man who talks for us do for us? 
against the mill. Yeah. So what does he do for us next? <laughs> Blow the place up. Okay. <laughs> Tie the mill manager up and uh, skin him alive. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's a good idea? <laughs> God dang, I freaking love the introduction to the character of Arthur here because at this point, He's like this complete mystery. He literally sort of shows up out of nowhere without any sort of explanation. Um, but we don't really need one because he's like this uh, this mystery, so to speak. And we're not really sure, you know, uh, whether we should be laughing with him or, you know, maybe be a little wary of him. Because he's like super intense and he's intimidating and he's like this giant like hulk of a man. Yet he has this, you know, kind of quiet, soft, almost sarcastic demeanor that most Native watchers would um, pick up on immediately because in in all of our communities, I I think that we sort of have that one person that um, is just like this. Um, They're very, um, uh, you know, intense. They're very um, matter of fact. They're they're to the point. And when they say things, um, they say them with meaning, even sometimes when they're just sort of joking. And we're not really sure, like, well, is that, is that, is that a joke or is that for real? But anyway, um, I, just, I just love the introduction here because he's like such a mystery. Well, we come to find out that he is on the, the trip with um, Wilf because he needs a ride over to back kind of back to the mainland because that's sort of where um, what Wilf is doing here. But in the book, it is just a complete mystery. Um, in the book, it's just a little bit different because Peter um, is going out of town. Um, he, he's got to go back to Toronto to write the story. And he has one day left and he asks Wilf if he could, um, you know, uh, take him on like a fishing excursion when he wants, you know, Wilf to kind of be his, his guide. And so, um, uh, Wilf sort of takes the opportunity to take Peter around to show him, you know, how much the land has changed over the years. And Arthur's just kind of there, um, to kind of help, you know, guide them like on the places where they're, where Wolf wants to take him. So he's like showing him like all of these places, um, you know, like where they used to go to church and where they used to play stickball and where they used to have ceremony and where his house was and where, um, the schools were. And, you know, some of the places now, um, are just like unrecognizable just because the way that the land has just been decimated through just years and years and years of just colonialism, years and years and years of clear cutting and, you know, just, you know, damaging the land and that it's just sort of changed. So that is like the big, you know, major difference between, um, the book and how the book starts and how, um, um, the movie begins. 
But in the movie, Arthur is there because he also needs a ride back over to the mainland. See, Wilf is taking Peter um, back to the airport. Um, so he has, they have to do this by boat because if you remember, Peter came in by plane. So um, they, they both sort of need a ride back to the mainland. But Arthur's there, and he's got like a, a cigarette in his mouth, and he's got like a black gym bag slung over his shoulder. He's dressed in like all black. He's got black T-shirt, like black leather vest. He's got black jeans on. Um, he's got that necklace on. And um, just kind of, like I said, looking very mysterious, you know what I mean? But uh, Arthur and, and Peter McGuire and Wilf, they all sort of climb aboard this boat, and they kind of gently kind of start set out on the water, and there's just like this brilliant overhead shot of Arthur um, as he's sort of like laying towards the bow of the boat. And he's kind of like got his arms outstretched and his fingers are just barely like skimming the surface. And I'm not sure whether it's intentional or not, but I have to think that it is just kind of giving the track record of the film's director, um, Bugoski, Bugoski, um, because it's this really like Christ-like pose. Um, he's got his arms outstretched. Um, his head is kind of slightly tilted back to the left, um, but he still has like this, you know, scowl on his face. But um, like I said, it, it may not be intentional, but if it's not, I still love it all the same because that's exactly what my mind, that's where my mind went. But Arthur um, kind of continues this little um, stare down contest with, with Peter and Peter kind of looks at him and it sort of forces him to kind of make some awkward, casual conversation. So, where are you from? Recently? All right. Are you Jibway? No. Cream? Same thing. Oh, they're not. No? No. Well, do you know about these things? Well, don't think I'm completely ignorant about the native cultures. I've read quite a few books on them. Books. Literature. You know, the white man makes me laugh with his writing. Hmm. Well, the early Iran didn't laugh. They thought writing was magic. Is that a fact? You know, us Indian folks have an oral tradition. I know that. So the man who talks thinks he knows things. But do you really know our oral tradition? And it's at this point that Arthur then reaches into his gym bag and he pulls out this little green grass snake and he like rams it like two inches away from Peter's face before quickly snatching it back and then literally bites its head off. And then he calmly tells Peter, That's oral tradition. What the hell? Like, that is insane. That That is, like, completely out of nowhere. So the scene then, like, shifts from the rippling water of the lake to, like, this rippling water of a motel swimming pool. And the camera kind of pans up to, like, this raucous party and, like, the sound of good old southern rock blasting on the stereo. And I got to stop right here because um, – and ask the question, what is southern rock, like, doing in a Canadian production? I mean, come on, y'all. Y'all have, like, some amazing bands like Helix and Anvil and Triumph and BTO and Rush and Exciter. April Wine, Loverboy, Slaughter, John Michael Thor, and Stompin' Tom Connors. 
I mean, if we're going to go for Southern rock, at least look no further than like Blackfoot. Like, come on. But anyway, I digress. Uh, we see Peter and he's sort of like um, passed out on his bed, surrounded by papers, just completely unaware of the party that's uh, raging next door. And he's awakened, though, by some pounding on the wall from the party goers. And he kind of like, you know, gets up and he like stretches the stiffness out of his neck and he like, you know, gets off the bed and he's kind of like starts hollering through the wall for, you know, like telling them to like shut up. But it doesn't phase the party at all. And then he kind of starts like beating the wall with his fists. And then when this fails to work, um, suddenly there is a knock at the door. And Peter opens it to find a smiling Arthur, and he doesn't waste any time. Um, he just invites himself in and just quickly gets to the point of the matter. You could help me kidnap the plant manager. What? What? Blood rickets. That's a good idea you had to blow up the mill. Oh. Was, I, uh... <laughs> Was I serious about that? What you said. It wouldn't work. I don't have any dynamite. <laughs> Too bad. But we could skin him. We could put him through his debarking machine. You know, maybe if a guy thinks he cuts down our trees, that somebody will cut him. He'll worry. <laughs> That'd be something. Eh? You and me, we can make Bud Ricketts worry. So in the book, there is just like a little bit of a discrepancy here because, um, he doesn't like try to even begin to um, negotiate with him. Arthur basically kidnaps Peter um, at the motel uh, and, and sort of uses him um, like right away. So there's not like this back and forth of like, well, should I? Or like, were you kidding around? Like Arthur like barges into the room and just tells him straight up, here's what we're going to do. But after the conversation, Arthur sort of acknowledges that party that's happening next door. And he asked Peter, he's like, um, you know, like, what do you think about that? And Peter kind of kind of shrugs his shoulders. So he asked Peter, he's like, you know, what, sh- what should we do about it? And Peter sheepishly kind of says, you know, maybe we should, should tell them to be quiet. And then true to his nature, Arthur just very matter-of-factly says, yeah, you go over there and, and you tell them that that noise is bothering you and, and tell them to turn it down. He's like, you go over there and you be really polite and you see where that gets you with the, that inconsiderate scum. So um, he tries to prove Arthur wrong <laughs> and Peter kind of goes over and knocks on the door and politely asks the, the party goers to, if they could turn it down. Um, he's like, you know, I don't want to have to call the police or anything. And then the man who opens the door is like this real asshole. And he like very patronizingly says, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. Um, I don't think that we are being loud. In fact, like maybe we should get a second opinion. And so then he like turns to the guests in the room and he asks them, hey, guys, let's take a vote. This guy thinks we're being too loud. Like raise your hand if you think that we're being too loud. And it's at this point, Arthur is just like F this. And he like barges into the room and he like pushes both Peter and the party goer like right to the floor. And then what happens uh, is like five or ten minutes of just like the most intense moments in the entire film. Well, the first tense moment of the entire film, because there's a lot in this film, but this is the first one. 
Um, Arthur like brandishes a knife. Um, and then he has this to say to everyone in the room. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning here because there is some really harsh language in this clip. So if you are offended by anything um, like that, um, you might just want to skip ahead. Okay, okay, look, it's cool, huh? Freddy's over. I know you. Yeah. You don't know me. Hey, hey, we don't know you. Okay, get him out of here. Everything's cool. Party's over, all right? Oh, I remember you. You are the superior fucking race. Stop this. I just wanted it quiet. Huh? Okay, everything's quiet! Everything's cool. It's done, all right? Yeah, you got that right. This has nothing to do with me, right? This has nothing whatsoever to do with me, okay? Tape them up. Well, you wanted them quiet. So, yeah, Arthur just, like, immediately, um, you know, uh, expresses his dominance, um, you know, literally just cutting them down. He's like, um, I know you. You know, um, you know you're, you're the superior effing race. And, man, that is, like, a really powerful line right there and a really super ballsy line, too. Uh, I don't even think that line is even in the book. Um, so I don't know whether that was um, a part of the script or if Graham Greene came up with that. But either way, like, I mean, it's it's super intense. Um, so anyway, um, Arthur says, you know, like, Hey, we're either going to, let's just tie him up. And, or if you don't want to tie him up, I'm just going to slit their throats then because one way or another, we're going to shut their freaking mouths. So he tosses a roll of duct tape to like an extremely shook Peter Maguire. And he kind of has no choice, but to, you know, agree to do it basically. And then, um, you know, trying everything in his power to sort of calm the situation, Peter starts just taping him up. And then the party goer who answered the door, um, I don't think he realized the severity of the situation because he just straight up calls Arthur. He's like, you're an asshole. And then to this, Arthur like starts really like violently like taping up his mouth and his eyes and his nose. And I mean, like it is like super um, harsh the way he does it. Like it's it's I mean, it's it's real. Basically, I think I don't think there's any acting going on here. Because, like, his nose is, like, pinned up like a pig's, and he's, like, barely able to breathe out the bottom through his mouth. Um, and you hear him breathing. He's, like, going, for like, like really labored, um, you know, he's, like, you know, right coming, like, right through the ligature, basically. And um, I think, you know, just by watching this scene over and over, the, the actor, um, you know, was probably feeling very claustrophobic because you can really see him like squirming and like shifting and, and fighting basically almost um, to get through the scene. So, um, yeah, it, it's pretty tough. So once he has like, you know, the whole um, crowd there uh, taped up, uh, Arthur kind of goes over to the only woman at the party and he kind of like looking her up and down. And then he says this. And again, once again, I mean, if you are offended by any kind of like harsh language um, or any kind of triggers like that uh, of, of abuse, I ask you just to skip ahead. So you're the superior fucking race. No. No. You've been lying to me all this time? Leave her alone. Oh, nine, 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 my ninja. Don't hurt the good lady. Shh. 
talking, partying, all over the earth. Just good looking shit through the walls. So he just kind of starts like taping her up, just like he did all the others. And thank God, because like um, there's a moment there where you think that he's going to do something just really appalling. And, um, you know, films back in the 90s and, and even in the 80s, certainly in the 70s, you know, they had no qualms about, um, you know, depicting um, like, a, like a rape or something um, in a film. And so it's hard to digest those images, you know, um, just as your casual everyday film goer. But um, when you see it played out on screen, to me, it just, it almost makes me sick to my stomach. But luckily, um, that's as, you know, I mean, not luckily, because I mean, it, you know, violence against women is, is never right. But, um, you know, but for the sake of the film, that's all that he does. But as he tapes, uh, kind of as he's taping her up, he sort of looks over to the bed and there's like a ton of pictures from the mill protest, like all strung out over over it, you know. And it's only then, at least for me, that, that I realized that these people are the news crew that we saw earlier in the movie. But after he gets everybody taped up, um, he like, you know, Arthur steps back like proudly admiring his work. And he says something like, there, now they're all quiet. I mean, he's almost like a kid who cleaned his room and he's like looking for praise from, from mom or dad or something because he's like so proud of himself. But before he leaves, he picks up a war club and he raises it above his head like he's going to just bash this guy's head in. And he rears back like uh, Barry Bonds or something and he like swings it like super duper hard. And you just know for a fact that this dude is a goner. But what ends up happening is it like stops like just inches away from the power knob on the TV. And then he just gently like taps it and he turns the TV off. And then Arthur like turns to Peter and he's like, "Um, all right, let's go. Now we got some real work to do. And I can't really do this scene justice because, honestly, it has to be seen to be believed. But once again, I'm kind of going back to the book. The scene happens um, almost you know, page for page or word for word as it does um, in the film, except that um, Peter you know, says, I'm not going with you. And what ends up happening is um, he takes the war club and he like smacks Peter across the face with it and like breaks his teeth. And then not only that, he does, in fact, um, you know, bash everybody's heads in at, at this motel. He kills everybody. And we find out later the whole reason that he does that is so that he can get a car. Um, but here in the story, he doesn't do that at all. He just sort of just like leaves them there. Um, so anyway, in the very next scene, we see Arthur and Peter and they're driving um, Tom Starblanket's truck. And the only reason we know that is because Peter says, like, this is Tom Starblanket's truck. He's a good friend of mine. He would not condone of any of, you know, would would condone of this. And and Arthur is just, like, ignoring him the whole time. But they pull into a gas station where they see Bud Ricketts, um, the mill, you know, like the mill owner, uh, the the lumber uh, CEO or whatever. And he's filling up his gas tank. Um, And so how Arthur knew he was going to be there at that exact moment is baffling. Um, You know, maybe he's been doing some recon on him. Who knows? Um, but anyway, um, here Peter, uh, once again, tries to like reason with Arthur and he, he once again pleads his case. What are we doing here? Bud Ricketts? How do you know he'll come here? Don't do this. 
Well, don't you hate him? I thought you did. I do. But this no, I thought you really hated him. I'm going to appeal. I am. I can beat him in court. Here he comes. Violence will accomplish nothing. Nothing, you understand? Now, just who are you lying to? Yeah, Arthur is not um, in the mood to hear any of that kind of poppycock. He, he immediately calls him out, like, you know, basically calling Peter a liar. Um, so at this, Arthur, like, um, you know, you know, throws the truck into drive and just, like, um, slams it directly into Ricketts' Cadillac. And Ricketts just nearly, like, browns his, uh, his, his Levi's Dockers just by the near proximity to the collision. And then he, like, comes over to confront the driver, and Ricketts um, is just, like, quickly silenced when Arthur <laughs> rolls up the window around his neck. It's awesome because, um, you know, here, uh, you know, Ricketts starts, you know, immediately hollering at him, like, you stupid drunk Indian. They're like, what's wrong with you? Don't you learn how to drive? Yada, yada, yada. And Arthur just, like, doesn't even make eye contact with him. He just, like, slowly, like, rolls the window up on his windpipe and just, like, immediately, like, shuts him up. It is awesome. So um, then um, he gets the same tape treatment as the motel partygoers. And, um, yeah, so, so that's that scene. Once Ricketts has been subdued, um, they drive along like this secluded dirt road and they like drive past these hills and these rocks. And and then we see um, that little girl, um, Polly, um, you know, the cigarette smoking girl from earlier in the film. And she's sitting on the porch of a house and she's holding Peter's briefcase. And as they pull up, she puts a twig in it. And I forgot to mention this, you know, um, in at part one, but um, she randomly sort of like shows up in scenes with Peter. And um, when things happen to him, um, she puts things in his briefcase. And then like earlier at the sweat scene, um, you know, she put some tobacco or she put some sage or whatever. Um, she put it in, in his briefcase. But anyway, um, they pull up to Wilf's house and then they get out. And Wilf is just sort of like casually sitting on the front porch and Peter, um, you know, immediately demands to know, just like, what the hell is going on? And then Wilf explains. What is this, Wilf? I'm on your side. Come on, damn it. Yep, <laughs> that's right. Wilf says absolutely nothing as he just like turns and goes inside the house, ignoring Peter completely. Um, but as Peter's, you know, kind of talking to Wilf or at least trying to, Arthur comes up from behind him and just starts taping up his hands. And then he goes over to the truck and he like aggressively like pulls Ricketts out and just like, you know, um, he just like falls down like really um you know uh, almost comically onto the ground what are you gonna do i'm gonna kill him no i'm gonna scalp him i could scalp him and be a real engine i should be a real engine shouldn't i shouldn't i <laughs> i love it uh, yeah, we have a finally have a mention of a scalping here. Um, as you know, that's one of my groaners. But for this movie, it's done in such a way that it actually sort of like mocks the trope itself, if, if you couldn't tell. Um, you know, it, it's what basically everyone is thinking at this point. Um, because, um, you know, just the way that the natives have been depicted on screen for decades, um, where we've been portrayed as, um, you know, either one of the two, it's like this mystical story. Stoicism or these wise, you know, uh, 
elders or, or you know very passive people um, or it's the opposite of that it's like these you know you know to quote the the declaration of independence these just merciless indian savages um, and that's what the audience expects so why not just like throw all caution to the wind and let's just say it. Let's just say, hey, I should kill him. No, 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 no. I'm going to scalp him. Um, I should scalp him, right? Because that, that's, what, that's what I should be doing or that's what you expect me to do. And that's going to make me a real Indian. And I just love that because um, he's using that trope to basically taunt Ricketts. And meanwhile, um, Peter goes inside um, Wilf's house and again, he, he's trying to, to make some sense of all of this. And he's kind of asking um, Wilf, you know, like, um, what's going on? Like, what, you know, like, looking for some answers, basically. This can't happen, Wilf. We're talking kidnapping and assault here. Arthur has come to do this. And he'll be in big trouble for it. And he's not the only one, Wilf. He'll be in serious trouble, too. Mm. Okay, listen. No one's been hurt. Cut the tape and it's all over. All right? I'll forget the whole thing. Listen to me. I have been. So stop before it's too late. No. Put a stop to this. The influence of an elder can be overrated. Someone has to pay. So, like, right after he says that, um, Arthur comes through the door carrying rickets in, um, like, all over his shoulder, slung over his shoulder. And then he, like, callously, like, drops him to the floor, um, kind of like a high school prom date about midnight. And Peter um, goes over to, like, beg Arthur to stop, like, you know, before this goes, you know, too far. And then Arthur just, you know, shuts that shit down real quick. And then he kind of looks towards Wilf for some help. Um, and Wilf just kind of mutters something along the lines of what you heard in the clip. Uh, the influence of an elder can be overrated. And once again, I have to, to tip my hat to, to this film um, and the screenwriter because, um, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to be looking at Wilf as this wise elder, you know, with, with this sage advice, like imparting all of his wisdom, you know, in like this symbolic kind of way. But instead, it's the opposite. He's just like, yeah, don't look at me. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have tried for centuries, you know, to counsel with the white man with, with words and treaties and, and nonviolence. And, you know, basically look at where that got us. And man, I just I, I love that because it's just such a uh, a one eighty from how elders are always um, portrayed in in you know uh, uh, you know Native American films. But Peter, of course, is just really frustrated by all of this, and Wolf just at this point kind of looks at him, and he knows, but he replies, you know, like sorry, you know, somebody's got to pay. And in the meantime, Arthur has uh, secured Ricketts even further by bounding him up. Like, basically, he's like a duct tape mummy. And then um, he pulls the tape off of his mouth, you know, and it's it's hilarious because you can tell he's just, like, yanking out the hairs of his mustache like a wax job um, before, like, just delivering this strong open-hand pimp slap to the broom handle of Ricketts. And then Arthur just continues taunting him by promising him to, um, hey, I'm going to go after your family. Uh, what in God's name are you doing? Uh, 
John. I need a good fuck. Stop this, you hear me? Give her a good fuck and then do her with a screwdriver. Remember that? Stop it! Oh, you hate me, don't you? You hate me so much you're scared shitless. <laughs> See, a man tears the wings off a bird and he hates it because it can't fly. And then it scares him because he doesn't know what it's good for. Lying there flopping around on the ground like a fish. McGuire, what on earth is he talking about? And what are you doing here? I'd help you if I could. I would. Talk to me. Tell me what's on your mind. You want a job at the mill? Is that what this is about? Talk to me. He's like a fish talking to a fucking oil tanker. I've got friends you can talk to. Oh, you mean like doctors? And what are you going to say to a doctor? The guy got a bloody nose and this murder and mad engine needs to be in a loony bin. We can talk. Talk to my buddy. I'm not your buddy. He's the man who talks for it. I'd rather talk to you. Talk to him. What the hell are you talking about? And say what? I've got nothing to say. Well, neither do I. Dang. Arthur ain't playing around now. Uh, so he references earlier uh, in a clip that I didn't play um, something along of him speaking in terms that he'll understand. And what he's talking about um, is violence um, and the mistreatment of Native uh, people by early settlers. Uh, you know, going all the way back to like deals and compromises and promises and, and treaties. Uh, violence and suffering was um, the true universal language. And, um, you know, in, in films uh, or even in general, um, you know, you rarely see this kind of anger um, directed towards uh, a colonialism, you know, especially one directed by a white filmmaker. And that's why I, I have to think that um, Bugoski just, you know, giving his whole backstory is like the perfect person to um, to direct this film because he's such an impartial witness to all of it. You know, it's not his culture. It's not his history. Um, it, you know, this he was European. I mean, um, you know, he his family, you know, he lived his whole life. His family lived their whole lives, you know, overseas. And so, you know, he kind of comes in with, with fresh eyes and he sees it, you know, for what it is for the very first time. And throughout the entire film, um, Arthur continue continues to like um, every chance he gets to talk about, you know, um, just the horrible um, tragedies that occurred and just the, um, you know, misogynistic and, and um, just violent um, actions that uh, white settlers took against um, um, the native people. So he, he uh, Arthur then kind of like loads up a rifle and he shoulders rickets and then the entire crew sort of head out the door, um, including um, at this point a bound Peter McGuire. Um, Arthur uh, loads up Peter and rickets uh, onto this tiny little outboard boat um, and he begins to kind of slowly put out on the water. And he's, uh, you know, still trying to make sense of everything. Peter, once again, kind of turns to Wilf one more time before um, he has to leave with Arthur. And he's kind of looking to him for some type of salvation and, or understanding or something. And obviously, um, you know, he feels deeply cut um, by this betrayal. But before Wilf can even muster an answer, Arthur tells him basically, like, shut up and get in the boat. 
And um, right as he does that, the little watch um, or his little Palm Pilot or, or whatever it is, uh, it, the alarm starts sounding and um, it kind of starts beeping. Get in. We have to know. Get in. That's tradition. Well, this is not right. Jesus, Murphy. Sit down. So, yeah, right. As soon as the watcher or the, the palm pilot starts beeping, uh, you can hear Arthur kind of like, you know, breathing, um, you know, those little short breaths. And what he's doing there is he's doing like this little um, straight dance to like the rhythmic beep. And he's like pointing and then he's like puts his hand up behind his head to sort of like symbolize a headdress. He's like doing like the disco thing with his finger. And, um, you know, it's it's friggin' funny as hell what he does. Uh, because, you know, Maguire realizes, you know, at this point, like I'm, I'm basically at the mercy of this giant Indian. And so he has no choice but to comply. So... The three men um, start off um, on wherever they're heading. Um, you know, you kind of heard uh, McGuire like, you know, we have to know like what's going to happen to us or like where we're going to go. But anyway, um, they're sort of out on the water now and, you know, attempting to find some type of humor uh, in the situation. Uh, Ricketts with his tongue planted firmly um, and quite literally, actually, in his cheek, he says. What happened to the last guy you lost a court case to? The Inuit fed them to their dogs. You're in on this, aren't you? Sure, all the way. You're quite the loser, I hear. One good cause after the other, I hear. Excusing the pun, but we're in the same boat. Right now, I'm the only friend that you got. Can you handle your Indian? Wow. I am filled with confidence. So at this point, Ricketts still kind of believes that he's in some sort of like hostage situation. And he does not really like fearing for his life too much, you know, um, despite the fact that Arthur's basically beat the shit out of him now. But um, after an undetermined amount of time later, um, the boat reaches like a shoreline. And the scene dissolves into a still bound up Peter and Ricketts, um, and they're standing by a campfire. And once again, they're just trying to figure out just exactly, um, you know, just where the hell they are and what they're going to do. And if you listen to the soundtrack carefully, you can faintly uh, make out the sounds of like chainsaws um, just continuing to clear the land. Um, so it has to be somewhere in the vicinity of where the movie began. And um, so Arthur, um, as they're talking, he kind of breaks up the party by walking in between the conversation. And he's whittling the end of a long branch, um, and he's kind of, you know, basically cutting it into like a real sharp point. And then he wades into the water looking for a fish to spear. Can't catch fish that way. You know, just between an Indian and a white man, how would you catch a fish? I wouldn't with my hands tied behind my back. 
Well, then it's a good thing we already got one. So in one of the film's numerous, like, FUs to these white guys, Arthur just immediately pulls the stick out of the water, and there's, like, a huge fish dangling off the end of it. And then he takes the, the fish off, and he, like, ramps the stick, like, right into its, like, gaping mouth. And he walks over, and he holds the fish, like, directly over the fire. Uh, Ricketts, like, shouts at him, like, yeah, don't be lazy. you got to clean it first. And Arthur's like, nope. Um, it's, this is Indian style. It's the Indian way to eat the whole thing. We eat the guts, we eat the scales, we eat everything. And Ricketts um, complains again, enough to the point that Arthur starts to get fed up, and he just hands the stick to McGuire, and then he grabs Ricketts by the face, and he sticks his knife. He has like pulls out this knife, and he just like sticks it like dangerously close to him, and then Ricketts immediately goes into backpedal mode. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, if I am, in fact, who you think I am, what, in fact, do you want? I want Indian peoples to be happy, eh? What? You could turn off the mill and you don't. What, you mean just to switch it off like, like a light bulb or something? Arthur, it's not that simple. That mill is the lifeblood of this community. It feeds a thousand people and their families. If I switch it off, where are they going to go? Arthur, don't bother talking to them doesn't want to understand. Shut up! I am talking to Arthur here about what Arthur wants to talk about. So, Arthur, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the trees. We're planting new ones. You cut more than you plant. No, we don't. Okay, okay, okay. You stop using paper products, and we'll stop cutting your trees. You commit crimes, admit it. And you reap the benefits, just admit it. So we get another just moment of brilliance in this script and from Ricketts. And he's smart to sort of throw that egg right back into Peter's face. Um, you see, like, um, basically, uh, they, they're both people, uh, the, the lawyers and in the lumber mill, are profiting off the Indians, but in, in entirely different ways. Um, and Ricketts is the only person to sort of call attention to all of this. Um, you know, they basically, if you think about it, they need each other uh, in order to exist. One, there has to be a, a, a person to fight. There has to be a bad guy to fight. You know, if, if in fact that the, the Peter is the good guy, then there has to be a bad guy to fight. And so they sort of need each other. Um, you know, so basically. Uh, you know, not to get too wordy, you know, without these like sketchy practices of big money, resource mining, drilling and clear cutting, you know, th there'd be no need for environmental law or environmental lawyers. Um, and in this film, it, it, di it directly ties such, you know, sketchy practices to how it affects native land. And it's just such a bold concept um, about land rights, you know, for a film that's, you know, um, 30 some odd years old. It's just it's very groundbreaking. So after like the intensity of that little exchange of dialogue, we get another little um, pacing moment of quiet. And the scene sort of crossfades to McGuire and he's asleep against a tree. And then suddenly he's awakened by the sounds of gunshots sort of echoing through the hills and he like drops to his stomach and he starts looking for cover. Um, and then Ricketts like, what, you know, like, what is that? And, you know, McGuire says like, I think it's gunshots coming from nearby hunters. So McGuire like stands up and he starts running into the water with his hands, you know, up in the air, begging them like, stop, stop, stop. Um, you know, somebody go get help, go get help. 
And then emerging from the bush are indeed two hunters. And they quickly realize that they they accidentally shot um, at, at human beings. So they're like, you know, quickly apologizing for their mistake. But Peter's not even, he doesn't even care. He's just like um, trying his best to explain the situation as quickly as he can because Arthur is like nowhere to be found. And so he starts to tell the hunters like, you know, like, um, hey, we've been kidnapped and there's like a man over there and we're being held against our will and we need you to go get help. But before the hunters can even sort of like grasp what's going on, Arthur just quickly once again appears behind them and he has his rifle, you know, he's drawn a bead on the hunters. We're doing a hunt around here. What does it look like for Christ's sake? We're trailing a moose. Have you seen our moose? Do I look like a fucking moose? Elmer? Oh, fuck. Yeah, right, fuck. This is Indian land, chief. Actually, I don't think this is Indian land. Well, I'm a fucking Indian. It doesn't make it Indian land. Okay, listen. You guys have a vehicle? You must have a vehicle. Look, I'm from Chicago. Uh, you live around here? Take us out of here with you. We've been kidnapped. There's a man over there. He's confused. Yeah, I think we're all a little bit confused. My name's Peter McGuire. I'm a lawyer from Toronto. We're doing a ceremony. Are you listening to me? I'm a lawyer. We're visiting our mother. Let's get the fuck out of here. What mother? Is his mother my mother, huh? It's a ritual, yeah? It's confusing. Confusing shit. Look, look, I got a business card. Here. Sorry we uh, upset your day. So chalking it all up to a misunderstanding, um, the hunter um, quickly tries to buy off the the mistake, basically. So he pulls out like this huge wad of cash and he just hands it to Arthur, um, basically attempting to buy their lives. Um, And miraculously, it works. He takes the bait and the two hunters sort of scurry back into the woods. And Peter, um, even though that uh, he tried to, you know, alert the men to what was going on. He looks disappointed that Arthur actually took the money and I'm not sure why, but uh, maybe he sees it as some sort of weakness by Arthur. Uh, maybe he looks at him as if he maybe sold out. Who are they? Where did they go? What happened? Shut up. Cut the tape. Eh? Cut the tape off. You heard me. Let him loose. This has gone far enough. You let me go. And the company will give you what you want. Oh, yeah. That's not why he's done this. Let me go, and the company will give you whatever it is you want. Within reason. Arthur, he missed the point. He's never going to understand. Let him loose. So while this whole scene is playing out, um, Arthur's kind of just kind of watching this little spider kind of dangle from a web uh, from a tree limb. And then um, right when he says cut him loose, the little spider lands on Arthur's shoulder and he quickly grabs it and eats it. And then he gives this look, uh, this menacing look at Ricketts and exclaims Apache style. And this marks like the third time in the film when Arthur sort of eats something, um, whether it's like uh, an insect or a snake or, or a fish. And it's important to know this because it's noted uh, in the book, especially the symbolism of the spider. In the book, right before they go into the sweat lodge, um, Wilf asks uh, Peter if he knows about the spider. And Peter's like, uh, no. Like, well, yeah, I think I've heard of something like that. 
And so Wolf kind of goes on to say that the spider is sacred to the Sioux uh, and that the Sioux are enemies of their people from way back from the West. And then he says, the mighty Sioux. And then it says here that he shrugged with good-natured contempt. You can still see the rivalry when we play hockey. And then he kind of goes um, on a little bit more, uh, you know, talking more about the sweat lodge. And then um, Wolf says, um, you know, about the sweat, there's blood on it tonight. Blood in the moon. But don't worry, he laughed. And then Peter says, I was worried. And Wolf didn't make things any better when he said... You know, two people recently drowned in the Lake of the Woods, and Wilf used the full name deliberately. At night, maybe the spider took them. And then he spoke lightly. Maybe they told things they shouldn't have told. Maybe they'd been interviewed by a newspaper. Maybe they were interviewed by a reporter from Toronto. And then he kind of, Peter, of course, that shakes him, and he, he promises Wilf, like, I promise I'm not going to write about any of this. Well, this has Peter kind of worried, and he kind of asks him, you know, um, is it possible that I would meet the spider uh, in the ceremony? Um, and then Wolf says, like, nope, you won't meet him because it's not like that. Uh, nothing like that at all, that the sweat ceremony is, is not for things like that. And then the next time that um, Arthur is kind of compared to a spider in the book is um, when they're kind of stopping for lunch um, on the fishing expedition. Uh, this is the parts where Wolf's kind of taking him, Peter, around to all of the places he uh, kind of frequented as a child, um, like the church and then where they played lacrosse and, and their fishing grounds and all that stuff and talks about how um, the water now is poisoned here and that the, you know, the, the land has been you know, kind of decimated and overrun um, with uh, clear cutting and, and, and strip mining and all these things. And um, at this time, you know, Peter wants to have a conversation with Wilf about uh, Arthur and, you know, he's like, basically, um, I don't I don't like him, you know, <laughs> uh, that that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Wilf kind of tries to reassure him, you know, telling him like, oh, don't worry about him. He's, he's harmless, you know, that he's he's a counselor. Da, 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 da. Um, but Peter says, um, I can tell you some things, um, some things that he well, actually, I'm sorry, excuse me. Wilf says, um, I can tell you some things, some things that he's doing, um, what Arthur's doing. Um, he's like the Sioux who came up here and we used to be enemies with them, with some of those people. And then Peter replies, I know. And then Wilf goes on to say, the Sioux wasn't a good man. He called up what I told you about at the sweat, the spider, and it wasn't a joke. He called it in the dark and the night, and the spirit was huge, and the size of the sky. People died. People went into the water, and they didn't come out. And then Peter says, you mean they drowned? And Wilf says, um, you know what the dark is? The dark is night, and the dark under the water, dark, down, afraid. That's what it was. Those people are down there right now, under the water, always afraid their hair floating out. They're no longer free. They're not free. That's what happened to Arthur. He's down there in the night and the water. He's dead. And then um, Peter kind of curiously looks at him and says, you mean he's cursed? And then Wilfs doesn't answer directly. And he looked out um, away over the choppy lake. It wasn't good. This fella coming here, that's not an Ojibwe. That's how I, I mean, how do I explain it to you? It's not an Ojibwe animal, the spider. 
And then Peter asks him, you mean totem? All the stars were out the night it happened, like drops on a web. The spider. He was as big as the sky, and some people went into the water. I shouldn't have told you this much, but you're pretty harmless. Wolf paused and laughed. For a white man. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Wolf. No, no, he said seriously. You want to learn. You mean Arthur's mad like crazy. Not that. You just need to watch him. Well, I won't see him again. Hmm, I guess not. So there's like this other kind of story about, um, you know, how the people, uh, they, the, the Sioux had called on the spider. And when they did that, um, it brought darkness and it basically flooded the land and it killed the people right where they were at. And uh, Wilf explains that that's where Arthur has come from. He's come from the deep, dark water and that he's um, he's not dead. He's not cursed. But he's sort of like an entity. He he's like a spirit, and um, he doesn't really say that you know directly, but it's certainly implied there. So the spider has a huge symbolic meaning um, in the book, but in the film, um, you know, Arthur just eats it. Back to the movie. Uh, Peter um, is kind of perched on the bow of this tiny boat, uh, contemplating, you know, just. Basically, what the F am I going to do here? And um, it seems as though Arthur has decided that they need to move camp. So all three men are once again um, kind of motoring along the water. Um, Ricketts, just sort of desperate to try anything at this point, um, starts shit-talking McGuire real good, um, you know, trying to relate to and and maybe even kind of draw some similarities or maybe even some sympathies um, between himself and Arthur. And he says, um, you know, that he and Arthur are exactly alike. You know, we're, we're the same people, um, that we're both men of action. And, and Peter, you're, you're, you're just all talk, basically. And, you know, Ricketts then kind of starts badgering Peter about um, his viewpoints, kind of his liberal stance. And all the while, he's sort of looking over to Arthur for approval, you know, kind of like, you know, like a good son, basically. So the ride continues until sundown when the men reach, you know, whatever destination that they're heading for. And with a campfire built, uh, Ricketts continues his vocal jabs at Peter. Uh, He starts, you know, continuing to badger him, you know, asking him stuff like, uh, you know, why don't you just run away? You know, like you're not bound or tied up. Just just run, you know, kind of like daring him, basically. Um, You know, Arthur's not here. He's, you know, he's out out there hunting. So, you know, there's nothing should be stopping you, basically. And he's just sort of goading Peter into doing something really stupid. Um, So then he starts shouting, you know, like Arthur's name, like over and over, like, Arthur, Arthur. But every time he says that, the only response um, that he gets is is like this faint howling of wolves or, or maybe even coyotes. And it's important to note this, um, again, for reasons that we've started talking about, um, but they'll come in more into play later. But as soon as McGuire stands up uh, to to run, apparently, Arthur appears out of the dark. Arthur! Okay, cut the tape. Cut me out of this. Cut me out of this. Hurry up! He's gone! Hurry up! trees they're crying indians give me the creeps it's like they know something we don't 
So Arthur kind of walks around and he, he sits and he's kind of completely aware of what McGuire was thinking of doing. But for some reason, he doesn't really seem too bothered by it. Um, and it's the first time that you also get the notion that, you know, uh, maybe Arthur is in a little over his head here. Um, that maybe he's bitten off a little bit more than he could chew um, because he seems so lost uh, in the moment and uh, just kind of, uh, he just kind of has this look of, he's not sure, of unsuredness, you know, he doesn't know what, what he's going to do next. But uh, realizing that his situation uh, isn't going to get any better, um, Ricketts once again decides to try to negotiate with Arthur. We got things to talk about, Chief. You and I. There's things here I don't understand. So enlighten me. Tell me what my mill has destroyed. Tell me about uh, your traditional way of life. Tell me about freezing to death. That was tradition, wasn't it? Tell me about your wars. Tell me about your old people. Tell me about your children starving winter after winter after winter. Tradition. The mill has given you roads, transportation, medical services, stores, schools, decent houses, sewage, plumbing. Reserve plumbing don't work. Well, get it fixed, chief. It's free. Put your bottle on the table and pick up the phone. Phones don't work. Oh, so it's the phones too, is it? Busted. Everything's busted. Arthur, I expected, but don't you use that language on me. You're starting to look like one of them. You like that? Hoy, I am an Indian. Oh, look at me, Mom. I got an identity, too. you. You get to defend in another losing cause. What'll the government pay for our Arthur's defense? Another installment on your Porsche? The government will want it to look good. Justice seen to be done. That'll be worth a nice buck. Yes, sir. Lucky you. Mm-mm. Another lovely losing cause and you socking a Porsche from the taxpayer's tit. Sorry that clip kind of ran a little long, but I just felt it was important that you hear the whole thing because, um, man, Michael Hogan is so defiant in this moment, and it's such a wonderful performance there. I mean, he obviously, you know, represents the white infrastructure. Um, It's sort of like the infrastructure, you know, it doesn't care who gets hurt. It doesn't care who gets sick or who dies um, or what it's stripping away from the people or the land or the culture or or nature itself, you know, just as long as the machine just sort of continues to run. And this is just a story that's old as time, basically, you know, the ecosystem, the culture and the people will forever be impacted, um, you know, but it's all justified in the name of progress. 
you know, it's and the lines, you know, between, um, you know, savior uh, or what is a savior, you know, are certainly blurred because, um, you know, in a way he, he is sort of right, I guess. Um, and as much as that pains me to say, um, you know, are these environmental, social, or civil rights lawyers, you know, are they there to actually help or, or are they there just to kind of make a name for themselves and make a quick buck? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, win or lose, they, they still go home. And for them, life just continues as it always does. Um, so it's also worth mentioning, you know, that once Arthur is off screen, um, you know, the howling and uh, baying of the wolves uh, continues. But once he kind of shows back up on screen, when they cut to him, the howling stops. So, uh, yeah, just sort of lending further credence to the mystery of Arthur. But the next morning, we're met with another set of just near quiet, quick cuts of just the morning, basically. We see a, f- uh, a fog gently kind of rising off the water. There's caterpillars uh, tranquilly sort of gliding across rocks. The breeze is softly blowing. You can almost you know, picture yourself there in the moment. And then we see drips of blood kind of lightly splattering on some rocks. And then it kind of pools briefly before just kind of smoothly, uh, very... Um, satisfyingly it's weird to say that but it sort of just trickles down the side of the rock and it's it's a nice callback shot of the water on the rocks um, from the sweat scene earlier and then um the deep red you know at this point it's almost black blood begins to flow pretty steadily um over tree limbs and overtakes the caterpillar that we've been watching this whole time and kind of carries him with the the current Um, And then as his watch once more begins to rhythmically beep that familiar pattern, um, a sleeping Peter McGuire, you know, opens his eyes and he sits up and again kind of takes in the situation. He stands up and he kind of strolls along the riverbank and then he comes to this beautiful little water brook and um, we hear the soft sounds of Arthur singing, um, you know, in his language. And it's just really, it's a really pretty moment. And it's all setting up uh, a scene of horror because we also then begin to hear the sound of a struggle uh, occurring. And Peter kind of trails the sound until he hears the muffled screams of Ricketts in just pure agony. And he now kind of quick steps to discover Arthur again, just calmly sitting and singing to himself while he's literally, and I mean literally, skinning uh, Ricketts' leg with with a knife. He's going to skin him alive. And you want to talk about brutal. Uh, This image is so unnerving because the shot of it is so realistic as Arthur is just carefully, carefully, with almost precision-like, you know, excellence, just filleting the skin away from the muscle. And then you've got, like the fat and the tendons are exposed on the leg and it's, it's so intense that, uh, it just takes your breath away because, um, you're certainly not expecting that at all. And then Peter just appallingly like observes the terror before he starts shouting at Arthur to stop. (laughs) 
What are you doing? Debarking him. Well, you wanted him hurt, right? Sitting alive is what you said. Well, I am your friendly neighborhood cruel engine. Whoa, Jesus H. Christ, I don't even know what to say. I mean, what could anyone possibly say to that, you know? I mean, if you think that this, though, is the worst that's going to happen, um, just you wait. Um, so Peter asks if this is Arthur's form of cruel revenge, to which he replies, um, you know, the soldiers used to cut the breasts off Navajo women and play catch with them. And... Um, you know, he kind of jabs the skinny knife towards McGuire and asks him, you know, like, now you tell me who's cruel. So McGuire, you know, quickly comes to the defense saying that, you know, look, that is enough. And the entire scene is difficult to digest anyway, um, just through imagery and words. But I think the entire point of it, you know, is to, you know, kind of beg the question of, of who who's the real monster, you know, I mean, and, and how, how was the monster made? You know, Arthur seems to be fueled off of just pure emotional hatred. And he's sort of taking that out symbolically on the one person that he feels is responsible for all of it. Um, and that's not just the lumber mill um, operator that's just the colonial white man basically and there's just there's so much more to the story you know to me uh, than just you know a corporate powerhouse versus a sovereign nation he's it's literally playing he's literally playing out every cruelty and exploitation um of his you know people historically now in the book if you think that just him getting skinned is the only thing that happens to him you are sadly mistaken because one of the very first things that he does, um, you know, the, the night before when Ricketts is kind of going off on him, you know, talking about, you know, like, tell me about, you know, your tradition, your, your, you know, is drinking, that's your tradition, right? And freezing to death, that's your tradition. And he's just sort of like goading him. Well, what Arthur does is he goes over there and, um, very like, uh, I mean, the way it's described in the book is just, it's unbelievably descriptive. He puts his thumb um, in his eye socket, in, in Ricketts' eye socket, and he pops out his eye. And it is a brutal, brutal scene So uh, in the book. And then um, to add sort of further uh, damage is, is, you know, after that happens, um, the, the scene causes uh, McGuire to pass out just from shock. And then the next morning he wakes up to find, um, you know, Arthur kind of finishing what he started, so to speak. But uh, what Arthur does um, in the book is not only does he skin the leg, but he places his knife behind the Achilles tendon and and slices it in half. And it is, again, it's such a brutal, uh, you know, description of, of what happens to Ricketts in the book versus in the film. And I'm glad, you know, they kind of left some of that out because it's, it's really not, ne not needed. Um, but it's certainly, you know, you know, continues to like drive home the point of just how cruel and how much hatred, uh, dwells within Arthur. They, can escape. they always do escape, wake up gone from what they do. The bad ones, the terrible ones with their chainsaws and their log skitters. They always wake up gone from what they do. Stop it! I'm cauterizing the wound. Or do you want him to bleed to death? I don't want him to bleed to death. Uh. 
You'll forget about the trees and the kids born stupid and the judges who laugh. You'll forget. Arthur will still be cruel. Stop it. Stop me. So Arthur just kind of like, um, you know, kind of goes back to what he's doing. And uh, McGuire is so angry at this point that he picks up this giant rock and he's just ready to bash his head in from behind. But right before he does it, he just stops because he, he can't do it. You know, he can't force himself to kill this guy. And then realizing that Arthur, um, you know, has pretty much kind of left him to his own devices, he sets the rock down and just starts, like, running towards the boat that they came in on. And it's at this point, he's just like, F it. Like, I got to make a run for it. So McGuire takes off and, um, you know, he's kind of running. You know, he can see the salvation, you know, kind of tied up in the, at the dock just a few feet away. And um, as he kind of walks up, he sees that the entire the entire motor has been disassembled into like a hundred different pieces, and he just falls to his knees in absolute submission. And with no other option, you know, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and just makes his way back up to the camp. And the next thing that we see is Peter uh, once again being woken by the sounds of native singing. But instead of expecting Arthur, we see Wilf, and he's sitting near a fire, probably about 20 yards away, and he's um, holding a feather, and he's just sort of um, cleansing himself. Um, he's singing a prayer song, and man, I sure would love to find a copy of this somewhere, though. It's just, it's really beautiful. And Peter literally um, crawls towards him, you know, asking, you know, um, you know how did you know that we, where we were going to be? And before Wilf can answer, we see another boat speeding towards the men. And uh, Peter realizes that it's the Calvary. And by Calvary, I mean police or, or the Mounties. And Peter looks around for any kind of sign of Arthur, but he, he's nowhere to be found. And the police, you know, pull up. They hitch the boat to this large rock and they kind of, you know, scurry out. And Peter watches as the Mounties grab their rifles and immediately point them at um, Peter and Wilf. And they're shouting, freeze. And like I said, you, th you think that um, they're going to be aiming these things at Arthur, but they're not. Um, they, they quickly grab Peter before he can even begin to explain to them like what's going on. And they also move in on Wilf too, and they literally like kick him over and they place him in handcuffs. And Peter's like screaming for them to stop, but it's it's no use because uh, once they feel like they have the suspects under control, they uh, they kind of go to check on Ricketts, who's just sort of lying there in a bloody heap. And Peter's like screaming at them, like, "No, no, no, no! It's not him! It's not him!" And you're like, "There's a man with a rifle out there. That he's out there." Uh, he, he's out there in the, in the woods and, and Peter's like screaming, like help, like get us out of here. Like, listen to me. Um, and what's aw awesome during this scene is, is Wolf never breaks his song the whole time that this is happening. Even as he's being kicked and handcuffed, he's his, the singing just fills the soundtrack. And again, man, I, I would love to know if this song that he's singing is available on any format. So if anybody out there that has seen the film and, and know what I'm talking about, um, get at me because I, I want a copy of this, this song. So, um, but as the singing kind of intensifies, we hear a shot ring out 
and the entire back of one of the Mounties head just gets split open like a canoe. And it's another gruesome sequence. And I mean, it's pretty super graphic. So if the sight of blood upsets you, you probably want to fast forward through this because it just comes pouring out like a sieve. And then Peter and the other Mountie kind of stand up and they're sort of shocked and in horror. Um, And then all of a sudden the gut of the other cop just like explodes in like this red mist as he takes a round like right in the old bread basket. And Peter and Ricketts all start running for cover. But the entire time Wilf just stands there just calmly, um, never breaking his song. And Arthur uh, comes up over the rock line. He's got his rifle in his hand, and he's heading towards the shore. And he stands over the fallen cop, and he kind of kicks the gun away from him. And the cop's, like, just struggling at this point. And he raises the rifle point blank and says this. Uh, It's the Indian guy that's supposed to be dead. That's what you think, isn't it? Holy shit. Oh, we have to hear that one more time. Did he say what I think he just said? It's the Indian guy that's supposed to be dead. That's what you think, isn't it? If that is not the biggest FU middle finger to white culture that has ever existed in film, I do not know what it could possibly be. This is hands down one of the ballsiest native films ever made, isn't it? I mean, can you ever picture an Indian saying anything like that to like John Wayne or Gary Cooper or Clint Eastwood? My God, what a line. And and he like drops his rifle. I guess I should mention this. He drops his rifle and then he raises his war club like high above his head and then just starts bashing the dude's head in like a watermelon. I mean, it is brutal and then um he aims the rifle at mcguire and he goes you go get rickets and let's you know gtfo you know what i mean and so wilf then during this time kind of wanders over and tries to explain to the white men you know basically what's going on and he kind of tells them you know i'm sorry but but this is the way it has to be you know somebody has to pay And he tells Peter that it's not his fault, but that his vision back in the sweat um, sweat scene earlier in the beginning of the film where he saw the image of Arthur, you know, before we knew who he was, you know, Wilf tells him that he dreamt he that he dreamed anger and that anger that his anger is real and that Arthur is like this physical manifestation of Peter McGuire's anger of anger. You know what I mean? So reluctantly, um, Peter kind of helps Ricketts to his feet and off they go following Arthur uh, into the woods. The very next thing that we see is Wilf and he's kind of trailing behind um, Peter McGuire and Ricketts who are all kind of trailing behind Arthur who is uh, carrying like a paddle boat over his head. And I'm assuming it's the one that Wilf came in on, but there's no like, you know, reference to it or anything. So um, as soon as Arthur is kind of at an earshot, uh, Wilf turns to Ricketts and McGuire, and he says, uh, I want to tell you a story. I would like to tell you a story. A story? About Waseka Jack. What? The deceiver. 
sacred jack was told to teach man how to live in the right way how to get along with the creatures and the forest but Waseka Jack made quarrels. He stained the ground with blood. And they told him no more, but he didn't listen. What's the point, Wilfred? Is there a point? Waseka Jack had to be stopped. There was too much blood. He had become a victim of his own stupid ways. He had lost himself. He had to be stopped. Yeah, this story is very important. Very important to this film. So um, I'm going to try to help you maybe understand the story just a little bit better and maybe finally put a little bit of context to it. So um, in case you missed it, um, I'm going to explain the legend of Waseka Jack to you. Waseka Jack is one of the most famous uh, of all the Cree heroes, and there are uh, hundreds of endless stories about him. Um, and some of them he is a joker or a trickster. Um, where he's always playing jokes on his brothers and sisters, the animals, plants, and rocks. Um, and stories about Waseka Jack usually have some sort of moral. Um, they are called story cycles because each one is connected. Each story is from the collective memory of everyone who has told it over and over and may change each time it is told. And the speaker may add characters from another story or just kind of change the story slightly uh, to make a certain point. But Waseka Jack was said to have many powers, such as the ability to shapeshift and be anything that he wants and to um, speak the language of the animals and plants. And no one really knows what he looks like. Um, he is ambiguous to the people, making the stories around him even more chilling. But he is believed to have left the earth and headed north, but returned sometimes to attend dances and other celebrations. However, his presence is never mentioned at these types of functions. The mischievous Waseka Jack is always getting into trouble in his attempts to prove his intelligence and strength. And stories about Waseka Jack usually begin with him walking around and feeling hungry. He is too lazy to get food for himself, so it's pretty common that he, uh, in the stories that he will try to trick other animals into giving him their food. Or sometimes he'll trick animals into becoming his food. Uh, tricks are often played on Waseka Jack himself. And the stories also tell of Waseka Jack's entrance into the world and his experiences. And they teach about how animals and plants came to have their present colors, forms, and special characteristics. The stories about Waseka Jack are to be told only in the winter. If they are told during the summer when there is good weather and we should be out working as much as possible, then the lizards will ruin the narrator's life by sucking his or her blood. These stories are meant to be narrated and not read. It is believed much is lost in the written word. Much of the spirit, humor, and excitement are also lost in the translation of these stories. They can best be appreciated in the language in which they are first told. Waseka Jack is regarded as this pseudo-religious character in the Cree culture. His actions may seem evil or bad according to, you know, Christian standards, but the Cree don't consider him or his actions evil. Christian morality is imposed in this situation. To the Cree, the means is less important than the end. Stories about Waseka Jack were to be told for entertainment, and as a way of teaching people how not to do things. 
So here, Wilf is say that um, Waseka Jack is the Manitou of pure anger. And the story that Wilf tells is not going to make a whole lot of sense right now. But trust me, um, you know, in the clip, right after you heard Wilf kind of like clap his hands, Peter turns his attention to Ricketts for just a, a quick second. And when he turns around, uh, Wilf is gone. In the book, things are just a little bit out of order. So there's going to be like another sweat scene coming up in the film. Um, and then right after this like sweat scene, um, what happens is um, Arthur takes Ricketts and Wilf and um, McGuire back to Wilf's cabin. And here is where um, they sort of start kind of having like this disagreement um, between Wilf and Arthur. And um, they're kind of arguing back and forth and, um, you know, just basically, um, you know, basically it's Wilf is asking, you know, Arthur a, a kind of about the kind of questioning basically about some of the deeds that he has done throughout the book up to this point. And, um, you know, Arthur is just trying to tell him, well, there are enemies, you know, and they're white and, um, you know, they're all like Indian fighters and, you know, da, 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 da. Um, and he's like nits breed lice and, you know, all this other say they kill children and, you know, um, you know, who cares, you know, do they care if any of their descendants died and like all of these things. So, um, Wilf is, you know, just kind of like listening to him and then like, he just, you know, um, just basically lets him kind of go off and then he sort of calmly um, looks at, at Arthur and he says, um, and this is on one page 131, um, do you know the story of how Waseka Jack became a deceiver and how the ground was stained with the blood of men and animals because of what he did, of how it went too far? Waseka Jack was the culture hero of the Cree and Ojibwe legend, and I knew some of the stories about him, phallic, cannibal tales, myths of adventure and passion, and powerful magic. But I couldn't believe that I was hearing his name evoked to protect me in the 20th century as I lay with a throbbing leg in a closed room, fearing for my life. Well, I think you've told me, Arthur sighed. Well, I'm going to tell you again, Wolf said angrily, so that you can see that there is too much death and that the circle has to lead back to life again. Well, go ahead, Arthur said, uh, more grudgingly than tolerant. Waseka Jack was told to teach man and beast how to live properly together, but he made quarrels and the ground was stained with the blood of men and animals. It was the slaughter on both sides. So all creation was destroyed in a flood. Only a beaver, an otter, and a muskrat survived, and they took refuge with Waseka Jack. And you've heard the story of how the animals dived for mud. Well, all that was remade. Well, th then all that was remade. <laughs> sorry. Then all was remade, but Waseka Jack no longer had authority. He became a deceiver, a trickster, transformer, and he nearly lost everything, and he certainly lost himself. But, Grandfather, we have lost everything. And Wolf was silent. Then, as if he was talking to himself, he insisted that the spirits were still alive. The forest is still full of them. Some clothe themselves with moss. During a shower of rain, thousands are sheltered in a flower. The Ojibwe, lying beneath the shade of a forest tree, hears the spirit of the voices in an insect's hum. There are thousands in a sunray, and he sees them and he hears them in the evening. The Lady of the South then lets her long black hair float upon the wind, and it is her voice heard in the rustling of the leaves 
and the noise of the water. I know what you're saying, Arthur was kind. But how can any of this be if there is no forest? You talk like a white man. Wilf's defensiveness was distracted and confused, as if he'd kind of lost track of what he was trying to explain. I am not a white man. It is the white man who will not allow what you describe. It's the Mounties, the whites, who persecuted the shaman, threw them in jail for nothing. Even out in the bush reserves, the isolated people who did no harm to anyone, and for what? Nothing, except to destroy them. The missionaries, sending children away from their parents to schools hundreds of miles away, then strapping them when they tried to speak their own language. The white missionaries, destroying everything, all beliefs in the name of their God, the only God. The mis- missionaries are the same as the police. The results are the same. Look at the lakes, the people, the rivers, sewers, sewers of death. The rivers are our blood, said Wolf. Then let them die, Arthur said. A snarl animal, but no, but so full of malice, so full of human sexuality and hatred as to seem supernatural, but still animal, came from outside. The sound stopped Arthur and Wolf, at least, or at least overpowered them, and I went to the tiny window to look up. So after this conversation happens, there's this loud snarl, and they all kind of rush to the window to see what it is. And outside on the lawn, um, like the moonlit clearing, um, there's this big black bear, and he walks right into the open, and he's kind of like twisting his head around and um, kind of side to side, but like he's um, irritated or he's almost like in some kind of torment. Um, and then he kind of like snarls again, um, and they they sound. You know, Wolf says something like, "You know that doesn't sound like a, like an animal." And the next thing that happens is this giant wooden, or excuse me, <laughs> this giant blue crane um, kind of also sort of flies flies in, and he's described as being ten feet high. And the bird he says is blue as night, and the bear was black. And the barrel snarled again, rose on its hindquarters. The bird stalked on, stalked on, its great saucer eyes blue as death, huge like plates that they reflected nothing. The snarling became louder, louder than anything organic I'd ever heard, full of the anguished cries, uh, like a thousand screaming cats, only deeper. So some other stuff kind of happens, and then all of a sudden the crane kind of rears its head back and spears the bear right through the heart. And then as soon as that happens, Arthur like collapses onto the floor. He's holding his stomach. He's gurgling. He starts crying. And then blood kind of starts dribbling out of his nose. So how cool would that have been to see in this movie? Uh, wow. That's something, that's, that's something else. But uh, anyway, so um, kind of back to the movie, they load an obviously delirious uh, rickets into the boat and they kind of set off to their next destination. And I say that because um, he's literally starts kind of like jabbering nonsense about like tomato soup and crackers. And I, it's just like this little touch of realism here, um, you know, that, 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 you know, to have this character be in shock. And I mean, I think that, would, you know, it's very realistic. It's a real aspect of, of you know, when, when trauma is happening, people go into shock and they just can't, you know, control their speech or anything. And so he's just blabbling at this point or babbling at this point. But anyway, they set off on the water again, and after this really extreme like paddling montage, uh, the trio arrive at a huge rock face, 
and it's covered uh, with like carved um, ancient petroglyphs. And they like pull in and they unload all their stuff once again. Arthur grabs his pack and then just kind of sets off into the woods, uh, leaving McGuire alone and with Ricketts just to kind of marvel at the amazing artwork left behind by the old ones. And as he enters a cave, um, even Arthur actually kind of takes a moment to stop and kind of, you know, stare and kind of puts his hand on, on the petroglyph. And he's kind of looking at this life-size petroglyph of a woman. And then he turns to Peter and he reminds him, you know, this is our mother. It's our earth mother. And as they pan across the petroglyphs, there is like this eroded like fracture um, that's kind of running down the middle of it. And there's like water seeping through, uh, it kind of creates like a crevice and it flows like between the woman's breasts and then like sort of streams out of her pelvic region. And uh, then it like runs like right between her legs and down to her feet where there is a petroglyph of a child or a baby actually on all fours. And it's like drinking the water. And man, I, I get chills right now just describing that um, because those are real petroglyphs. And um, it's just my, it's just a mind blowing concept, um, you know, because uh, these weren't, you know, petroglyphs created for the movie. These are actual petroglyphs. And it's just a gorgeous work of art, you know what I mean? And um, like I said, the author, the author of the book, uh, M.T. Kelly, claims that he knew where these were and he wanted to take the film crew there to film. Um, so I, I don't know if that's true or not. I really can't confirm this. But either way, uh, it's just spectacular to see. After that little uh, scene, Arthur kind of moves, moves on from the cave and he begins assembling the framework to a sweat lodge. And McGuire helps, at this point, just a completely pathetic rickets out of the boat. And Arthur announces that they're going to need to have a sweat so that they can purify themselves for what's coming next. And that little line causes McGuire to kind of perk up a little bit. And um, he kind of walks over. McGuire does. He starts begging Arthur, like, we've got to take Ricketts to a hospital. And at this point, um, you know, you you would probably think that McGuire would have given up at this point, right? I mean, come on. I mean, does he does he really not think that Arthur isn't aware of the gravity of the situation? I mean, does he really think at this point that now he's going to cut him loose? Um, it's just it's a soft headed notion to even think that that Arthur is just like, well, okay, let's 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 call it good here, but. Well, anyway, um, like I said, Arthur's statement about purifying themselves in preparation um, gets Peter's attention. So um, he's got to go once again and try to get down to the bottom of it. Um, he's got to know, like, you know, just what the heck do you mean, Arthur, when you say what's coming next? Like, what is coming next? And then Arthur turns. He, he kind of turns his back to him and just starts cutting and gathering some tinder to burn. And it's only then that Peter realizes what's meant uh, by what comes next. I have to kill you. What? Death. That's right. Somebody is going to die. So in that clip, um, Arthur kind of stood cutting the tender. And he kind of like stabs his this, you know, after he says that, he sort of like stabs this Rambo knife into the limb of the tree. And then he just turns his back and starts gathering the wood. And then Peter picks up the knife and he holds it above his head like he's really getting ready to stick him. 
And that's when you hear Arthur kind of like um, he starts talking about the correct way to stab a man. And then Peter, um, you know, he, he, he still he doesn't have the balls to do it. So he gets like super mad and he just like rams the knife like back into the fallen tree limb. And then he goes over to Arthur and mutters, um, you know, uh, like F you basically. <laughs> and then Arthur like slowly turns and stares Peter down before finally just sort of walking off. But you get the feeling that this is all about to come to some sort of boiling point. And as Peter looks down, he notices um, like this uh, maple sap that's slowly oozing um, out of the tree from where the knife was stuck in it. So uh, now we're all inside a sweat lodge and Arthur um, keeps laying like cedar bough after cedar bough after cedar bough after cedar bough on the crackling fire. And the entire tent like begins to quickly fill up with smoke. And Peter and and Ricketts, they're like they start hacking, they're coughing, they're gagging, and like, like spitting, and like violently like choking on all the smoke. And Arthur, uh, just not paying any attention at all, it doesn't seem to bother him one bit. Um, just starts a prayer song, um, ignoring all of McGuire's pleas. <laughs> Yep, that's right. In the middle of a prayer song sweat, uh, Arthur grabs his rifle and he fires a warning shot into the air uh, just to kind of quiet down the choking McGuire. And then just like that, without missing a beat, he just like picks right back up where he left off. You know, when we think about like um, how ceremony is um, portrayed in cinema, uh, we usually, you know, think about like this romanticized version where there's like this beautiful aesthetic in song and prayer and suffering. And there's normally, you know, like dramatic, ambient, um, you know, native flute that, that fills the soundtrack. And, and the participants usually go on like some sort of like spiritual uh, quest or awakening or, or a journey. And, um, you know, in, in, in this film, <laughs> there's like this, you know, light bulb moment um, where the protagonist, um, you know, understands his purpose. But all that bullshit goes right through the holes in the lodge that Arthur made with his 3030. There's like no peaceful connection that is made here. There's like no moment of enlightenment. There's no um, understanding. It's just fueled off of pure like hatred and anger. 
And that is the opposite of what the ceremony is all about. Um, you know, Arthur has brought all of the negative energy into a sacred place and he is coming to terms with his fate and he's like pissed (laughs) and, you know, maybe Arthur is angry at himself because, you know, if you think, um, you know, if you think he's finished doing his thing, then clearly you ain't been paying attention to this movie because the next thing he does in this ceremony will literally leave your jaw on the floor. And if you haven't seen this yet, I am begging you now, please, please, please stop this recording. You need to go to one hour, 18 minutes and 39 seconds of YouTube and then get back to me. We good? See, I told you it must be seen to be believed. Because what Arthur does is he takes a knife and he starts filleting his chest like a butterfly shrimp. And that's the first thing that he does. And then if that ain't enough, he cuts his damn pinky finger off. His damn pinky finger. And then he picks it up and he just kind of holds it up as if he's like offering it to the creator as a sacrifice or something. And all Ricketts can do at this point is utter the white man's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to cut my fingers off and make a necklace for your fat Thy thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you all hear that? (laughs) To simply mock the man offering up his prayers, Arthur tells him he's going to cut his fingers off and make a necklace for his fat wife. He he just like literally like cuts the man to the bone with that statement. Um, This is 100% the most intense moment in this entire film. There's a lot of tense moments, but this one, I think just with the, the, the music and the intensity of the sweat and, and the hacking and, and the, you know, the claustrophobia. There's just so much working together that, that makes this scene uh, really kind of powerful. I mean, it really does. Um, you know, Arthur basically, uh, you know, he knocks, you know, he knocks the man's faith um, in his beliefs. I mean, is there anything, you know, worse that he could possibly do? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess he could talk about his family or kids and such, but what he's doing here is he's literally taking away the foundation of what makes this man tick, um, his hope. And it's just, it's a brutal thing that, uh, obviously doesn't sit well with McGuire because he just starts like shouting at Arthur to stop, stop, stop. 
And and that of course, you know, causes him to grab his rifle and with his bloody paw, he just starts like popping off round after round. Um, there's like six or eight shots into the air. And then keep in, you know, you gotta keep in mind this whole scene is, is is taking place in like a tiny sweat lodge lit just completely by firelight and you know, just Finally, at his breaking point, you know, Peter and Ricketts both just kind of like start sobbing hysterically. I mean, they have literally, they're broken at this point. He is a broken man. And, you know, we as an audience are, are almost right there with them. You know, uh, uh, it's just the brilliance of this film. Like, you know, you you, you feel their pain, basically. Um, you know, so like. You know, Peter and, and um, um, Ricketts, they're like clutching at their heads and they're like weeping like these powerful yowls. And and again, I just I can't can't not brag about, you know, the brilliance behind this movie that, uh, you know, at one point we're sort of like cheering for Arthur. And then um, suddenly it takes like a super violent turn and it's a real sudden turn. And they were like, well, OK, well, that was a little much. And then it like let you know, kind of leads you back into cheering for Arthur again, or siding with Arthur, and um, you know. But golly, just I mean, I think at this point, as an audience, we're like, that's it's enough, it's enough. And um, so I guess let's take this home. <laughs> we're emotionally trained at this point, so. But the scene closes with Arthur um, just intensely um, shouting that prayer song, and he's like shaking. And it's just it's just unlike anything I have ever seen, um, you know, in real life or or even in a film. Um, and while Arthur's shouting, like I said, you know, McGuire's just sobbing and pleading and just, you know, just begging basically for help. And Ricketts just kind of, you know, goes back to, to praying because that's all he can do. It's just such a chaotic scene. And I ain't, I ain't lying. I mean when I rewatched it recently, it really did give me some real life anxiety. And if a film can do that, you know, like play on your real emotions, then it has certainly done its job. So, whoo. But anyway, so since the film and the filmmakers actually know what they're doing, um, right after this, we get that moment of calm that we need. Um, and it lets the audience, you know, like come down a little bit. And it's brilliant. It's like 30 to 45 seconds of nothing but like gentle breeze and the sound of water like gently like lapping the shore. And then the camera kind of fades over or fades over kind of like, you know, um, tracks over the water. And we see Peter's Palm Pilot. You remember those things like Palm Pilots? But anyway, it's it's under the water. And then we see trees and rocks and the petroglyphs and... I mean, again, I, I seriously cannot say enough about how well-paced and timed this movie is. This movie knows um, when you need a moment to breathe. It knows when to push the action. It knows when to pull it back. It knows, I mean, it, it's aware of itself, and all of that is, is shown on screen. Well, next up, we see Peter Maguire, you know, and he's kind of leaning up against a, a rock face, you know, kind of with his his head kind of buried, um, you know, in, in his, on his forearm, I guess. And he's standing like right next to the petroglyph. And I can't help but notice, um, that it's a man, um, standing over a dog who's lying flat on his back with all four legs sticking straight up, um, basically symbolizing death. 
And I'm wondering, you know, if this is some subconscious way to say that men are dogs and that Arthur is like this superior master. Or maybe it's like the predator and prey um, kind of comparison. Um, but anyway, this film is so like chock full of little little nuggets like this. And I'm probably overreaching trying to make sense of this. But either way, um, like I said, Peter's like leaning up against the wall. And um, keep in mind, the entire um, film soundtrack is just really soft, ambient nature noises. And um, he just kind of figures, you know, I'm good as dead anyway. So he just like starts just running like full speed, like up the steep hillside. But because the ground, I guess, is like this loose, moist soil and rock, he just kind of he'll go up about 10 feet and he just like slides back down. And it's just like over and over and over like a hamster on a wheel, basically. And he's like, you know, uh, um, scurry up, slide down. <laughs> but finally he gets like his footing and he starts grabbing onto roots and like, you know, overgrown weeds. And he starts climbing up and then we see um, Arthur like literally um, still we dragging. He's like dragging a still weeping um, Ricketts up the hill. Ricketts is still crying. And the whole time, like, he's seriously, he's, like, manhandling him up this hill, and he's just berating him. I mean, he tells him, like, things like, I'm going to hang, you know, you're going to hang where the crows fly, and you're going to, you know, I'm going to let you watch the earth below as it die, as you die. And he tells him things like, um, you know, you're just going to, I want you to hang there, and I want you to talk to your God about what you killed. And um, Ricketts is just absolutely worthless at this point. I mean, he's literally just dead weight. Um, he can barely move. And Arthur is just like shoving him and just like pushing him and like dragging him around by his collar like a like a beaten stray dog or something. And Peter kind of, you know, makes his way past uh, the struggling hostile men. And Arthur like screams at him. Um, it's like, this is your fault too. And it's like, it's your God that shamed our people and our earth. I mean, Jesus, really? I mean, so this movie is so intense that it's like scary and it's so brave to, to like push those, those, those issues. My God, man. Um, so anyway, um, I guess, uh, you know, Peter is sort of like done at this point and he figures like, you know, I've got what's left to lose. So he just like turns around and like kicks Arthur right in the face and it causes him to like topple like ass over elbows, like back down to the bottom of the hill. And he like kind of like comedically like slides down, you know, um, like on his back. It's kind of funny, but, uh, anyway, um, then like Peter try is trying to help Ricketts, um, who's about to slide too. But it's at this point, like Arthur, like comes flying up the hill, like a, you know, he's, he's like climbing that hill, like a ring tailed lemur. And he makes like short work and he just like, like easily catches up to, to Ricketts and McGuire. Like it's like, didn't miss a beat, like didn't have any issues at all. And then like this skirmish ensues as Arthur like grabs Peter by the belt and he's like yanks him backwards and it causes him to topple, um, you know, back down the hillside. And then Peter like slams into a tree and it knocks himself out like cold. And then Arthur just picks Ricketts up by the seat of his pants and just like tosses him to the top of the hill. And he just like lands on the dirt with like this real violent, like cartoony thud. And then like once they reach the top, um, Arthur like fireman carries him, uh, Ricketts, o over to the ledge of a cliff. 
And at first you think, man, this is it. He's going to toss him over um, because they're like looking out over like this gorgeous lakeside view of just this really lush, thick forest. Do you see? No. And you bloody well hang here until you do. And then you can watch your goddamn machines cut it all down! So this place that he brings him to is most definitely like a sacred spot because there's like this, um, well, I mean, I don't really know what it is actually because I don't really know about, you know, Cree ways or Ojibwa ways. So the best way I can describe it is it's kind of like a, a, a prayer altar. And I don't mean to offend anybody, because, but I just don't know. That's the only way I can describe it. But it's like set up um, kind of overlooking this overhang. And Arthur leans Ricketts up against the tree. And then he like goes and sits down cross-legged like before this little tribune thing. And then he closes his eyes and he just starts kind of praying to himself. <clears throat> and then we get like this point of view shot from behind as Peter like silently like creeps up behind the scene. And he reaches up and he like covers Ricketts mouth so that he can't scream. And then Ricketts kind of get, or excuse me, Peter gives Ricketts like the, um, you know, the international sign for, shh, you know, and then when he does that, Arthur's eyes like suddenly open up like wide and, um, McGuire like stands Ricketts up and starts carrying him out of there, like on his back. But Arthur, he stays put, you know, he doesn't move or he doesn't turn around even though he he's fully aware of what's going on. He just kind of like smiles like really big. I mean, I, I think he, he realizes that there's like, you know, there's no place or, or distance that they could. Could, that they could put between him that he wouldn't be able to close. And so he's just, you know, he's real savvy that way. So Peter, like, um, starts trying to get Ricketts back down the hill that they just climbed without, like, breaking him in two <laughs> or causing him further injuries, if that's even possible. But he loses his grip on the old man, and they both go, like, sliding down this rocky hill to the bottom. And... Peter now starts like dragging Ricketts towards the boat. And just as they're about to load in, we see Arthur and he's got his Rambo knife out and he's like ready to challenge. Um, feeling conquered and with like zero options, um, Peter like picks up a, it's like a good baseball bat sized tree limb. And he like hits Arthur like right across the face with it. So, okay, y'all, you know, like here, here's the moment you're waiting for. And, and I love the fact that there is no line on the sand. I mean, there's no real protagonist here. Um, you know, Arthur's just like mean as shit, but like, um, you know, Peter's no saint, you know, either by his own, by well, at least by his own definition. Anyway, Peter starts like wildly like swinging for the fences and he misses him like five times. Arthur like dodges a blow and then like socks Peter like right on the chin and it makes him like drop his log. And he like struggles to to, uh, to to get back to his feet, and he's like rocking back and forth before finally like giving Arthur like a Bill Goldberg spear like right in the water. And uh, before he can like get him up in the jackhammer, though, the the two men like continue their fight in the water, and they're just like trading blows like back and forth, back and forth. And Arthur kind of starts getting the upper hand by landing you know more blows um, than he's consuming. 
And now he's like just basically teeing off on Peter's face. And Peter like um, just desperately and cowardly like tries to swim away. But Arthur just like, you know, like pulls him back towards him, like just like grabs his leg. It's kind of funny. It's like the older brother or like that, you know, like the chunky cousin move basically. Um, Like when you're in the pool or whatever. Um, But he grabs Peter by the back of his hair and he just like shoves him face down in the water and tries to drown him. And Peter's like kicking and flailing around before he finally just goes limp. And Arthur, you know, he mistakenly thinks that he's dead. So he kind of starts to ease up on him a little bit. And then like a bolt of lightning, like Peter strikes up out of nowhere. um, And he's holding Arthur's Rambo knife and he like sticks him right in the chest. And Arthur like falls back against this rock wall. and, And now it's like Peter who's advancing and he's swinging that knife like a madman boy. Um, and Arthur's like trying to kick him away and, and um, knocks him off balance. And he causes him to fall like half on the boat. And then he finds like a rifle and he shoots towards Arthur. But the bullets just like, you know, hit just inches away from Arthur's head basically. And then he cocks the rifle again and he holds it up point blank to Arthur's head. And um, you know what's going to happen here. <laughs> he pulls the trigger, but click, out of ammo. So Arthur, like, slowly rises to his feet like a like a goddamn boss. And Peter's, like, holding the rifle like Chicago Cubs powerhouse Andre Dawson. And the camera does, like, this wicked-ass, like, 360 around the men as Arthur, like, um, you know, walks around McGuire just completely assessing the situation. And then he like stopped about like about six feet or so from McGuire and he gives him like this half cock smile. And then he simply like turns and starts wading out into the water. Uh, the water kind of rises to his knees and he keeps going and he's walking and it's kind of, you know, the water now is at his waist and he keeps walking straight out and now it's at his shoulders. And Peter's like looking at him like, what the hell is going on? And Arthur is just like, um, just still walking. And now he's like completely submerged up to his neck. And then he turns around and he faces Peter and he like smiles and he nods. And now the water is like overlapping his chin and then slowly like his nose and then his eyes. And then before you know it, Arthur is gone. It's kind of like that scene in um, uh, Cape Fear with uh, Robert De Niro. But this one is different because there's like this overhead shot that shows him slowly um, ghost-like just sinking to the bottom of the lake. And it's just hauntingly beautiful. I mean, it just he like slowly fades in like the dark blue-green abyss until you just can't see him anymore. And then once he finally disappears under the surface, you get these, I mean, if you turn the sound up, you get these faint, like, moans and howls and screams as he returns to the underworld. And, my God, it's an astonishing shot that just gives me goosebumps no matter how many times I've seen this. I mean, how they got Graham Greene or or the stuntman or, or whoever to do that shot is beyond me because you got to think like this is 1991. I mean, this is a practical effect. Am I right? I mean, there is no CGI in 1991 that could convincingly pull that shit off. So, I mean, that is real baby. That is all natty. So now it's like 
um, Peter and Ricketts like left alone to figure out how to get out of there. And they're both absolutely gobsmacked. And Ricketts kind of finally blurts out, like, is he dead? And a visual, like a visibly shook McGuire, just kind of like standing there shivering from fright or cold. Who knows? Uh, it doesn't say a word. And then the camera just like fades to black. So our, uh, Arthur's demise in the book, again, is just a little different. Um, it picks up where uh, that scene where um, uh, they, he took him to the top of the, the cliff um, in, in the movie. But in the book, he takes him to like this roaring like rapids, Arthur does. And he decides to um, – he's going to kill Ricketts. And he puts a life jacket on him and then just like tosses him out into this roaring, like these roaring rapids. And McGuire just in the book, he's talking about how he just kept seeing like orange go up and like fade and disappear. And like, you know, the bright orange of the life jacket as he's watching like Ricketts, like um, just, you know, float down the river, I guess. And then after that, like, McGuire looks at, at Arthur and he's like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> and Arthur's like, let's get out of here, you know? Like, this is a big bastard of a lake, so let's get out of here. So um, they get on, like, this boat and um, our, uh, McGuire just starts, like, pestering him, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like, like why, why are we going any further? Than, you know, why are we going further, basically? And... Um, Arthur's like, well, I want to show you something. And uh, McGuire's like, I already know about it. And then Arthur's like, no, you don't. Um, so anyway, so he's kind of like pestering him. And then all of a sudden, um, they were just like rowing the boat. And out of nowhere, um, Arthur just like stands up and he goes, I'm getting out of here. And this is on page 147. And um, McGuire goes, you're crazy, I said, looking past him toward land, looking at the yellow flare that meant aspens turning color, um, looking for outcrops or a cottage, looking for anything but a distant thin silhouette of black spruce. Come on, I said, let's go home. I was bored and sore now, starting to be exhausted again. I was so tired. You expected it, he said. Surprised one more time, I answered yes, realizing that he was right. Standing, big hands folded on the Adidas bag, Arthur towered over me. I'm sick of this world, he said. To hell with this world. And for a moment, I wondered if he was going to kill us both. But in his voice was the whine and the half cry of a child's sob of grief. His self-pity was poignant. It was terrible. And Arthur jumped into the water, and there wasn't much of a splash. And I looked over the edge, waiting for him to surface, bracing to pull him in. His face floated up. At least I think it did. He spoke. How could he talk from underwater? The face lingered, long and pale and ugly, but with something uncannily beautiful in the streaming weeds of his hair. And then I was alone, in spite of the sun. There was an iron in the air now, metal in the water, uh, the iron savior of the north. A strange swell came up and rocked the boat, and I drifted as if I was on the ocean. So in the book, Arthur is just like, ah, screw this. I'm out of here. He just jumps in the water. There's no, like, fight scene. There's nothing. Um, he and, and uh, McGuire are actually a lot closer and a lot tighter in the book than they are in the film. They don't have this back and forth. Um, they're, they're almost, like, in it together a little bit. 
But if you think that uh, the movie is over, oh, it's not. Because the next thing that we see is McGuire making a campfire, and he starts going through Arthur's bag to see if he can find anything to eat. Um, other than that, um, it's pretty much empty, and he sits back down, um, kind of staring into the fire. And then we see Wilf uh, float up on a boat, and he kind of approaches the two beaten man, and he says this. Nice fire, white man. Time to go back now. So here's kind of like where you get the feeling that Arthur maybe wasn't um, real at all. Uh, Like he was some sort of test or a trial that um, Peter had to go through. And um, there's also like this little throwaway line at the beginning of the movie when Peter asks Wilf, you know, "How, how can I get a hold of you? And Wilf tells him, if you need me, just light a fire. And so, yeah, the very first time McGuire lights a fire in the film is is when we see Wilf. So at daybreak, we see Wilf kind of bringing the ragged men back to the res. And waiting on them on the bank um, are several people from the community. And they've gathered, and there's about three cop cars with their cherries flashing. And then the boat, like, slowly makes its way back to civilization, and the looks on the men's faces are just complete relief. The trial is over. You know, like, the cavalry has come to take them back where they belong. And as they approach the dock, their six police officers, like, start hot-footing it towards the incoming vessel. And they say something like, "Uh, bring it in, bring it in, let me help you. But then one of them says, "Uh, hands where I can see them. And you think that they're going to take that they're talking to Wilf, but um, actually they pull the three men out of the boat and place uh, Peter in handcuffs, and the entire scene is just like absolute confusion. Like even the Indian people um, witnessing, um, you know, throw their hands up like what the f, and then like the cops start like um, questioning him, you know, uh, about the Indian, and, and Rickett says, well, he about the other Indian, and Rickett says he's dead, he drowned. But Peter, with the with his, with his hands cuffed, says, um, "You know, I'll be I'll be back. You know, I'll be back, um, or that he'll be back. I'm sorry, that he'll be back. That Arthur will be back." And um, then the little girl Polly, the one that smokes cigarettes through the whole movie, she's like standing there holding McGuire's briefcase, and um, you know, the one that he lost in like the first scene or so. And he goes, don't worry about it, Polly. Like, I don't need it anymore. And then the cop, like, takes it from her, and he opens it up, and he starts, like, shaking all the contents out on the ground. And you can't really, you know, tell, but there's, like, little medicine pieces um, from the entire film. There's, like, cedar boughs, like, from the sweat. There's, like, um, braided sweet grass. Um, there's, like, um, uh, you know... Um, trying to think of what else is in that off the top of my head i can't think but anyway oh there's like the old black and gray you know like the little film containers like um the reporter like the they used to put uh film in you know like when you used to take 35 millimeter film uh the reporters had that so um that's also in there there's like a like a bottle cap of perrier from like the motel scene there's like um you know black black hawk feathers there's like a case file Arthur's knife. Arthur's knife is in there. There's like a piece of deer antler, what was possibly from the lookout point, maybe. Um, and then there's like a, a like a stick that like possibly was like the log that Peter like used to bash Arthur with. It's also in there. There's also like a few pieces, uh, other pieces that I can't really make out. 
And then, um, you know, Polly is like wearing the silver necklace that Arthur wore so prominently around his neck. And Peter's like staring at her with like his mouth agape. And, um, you know, basically like the whole cycle, uh, it's, it, you know, it starts again, basically with this little girl, um, you know, has, has Arthur returned to his righted state is, was it Polly the whole time? But again, just confusion there, but the three men now are like led past like, um, everyone on the reservation and they put Wilf, um, and Ricketts in the back of a police car. And then they all just sort of like pull out. And the film kind of ends with the entire community like chasing after the cop cars as they pull away from the reservation. And then you as a viewer just kind of left sitting there emotionally drained and exhausted just like thinking, Jesus H. Christ, like what just happened? There's like no closure. Like we don't learn anything, um, you know, about the outcome for the case or if Ricketts had a change of heart or did Peter explain that he was taken against his will and the charges dropped? Was Arthur really even a part of this movie or was it just Peter the entire time? Kind of like a, a fight club, Tyler Durden kind of thing. And you're just like left contemplating the last 90 minutes. And so you're ready to start digging for answers which is exactly what I did because that's when I went to find a copy of the book that this film is based on. So if you're dying to know what happened to these characters or how the book ends, because it is different, um, hit me up on Instagram at uh, Skoden underscore cinema. You can also find me on Facebook uh, at Skoden Cinema. There's two groups. There's a private group and a public group. You can also reach me by email um, at scodencinema at gmail.com. So if you want to know those answers, hit me up and I will tell you all about them. But I do encourage you, if you can find a copy of this book, do yourself a favor and read it because it's great. It really, it's a good read. It's a quick read. It's only like 150 pages long. It's a quick read, but it's a page turner, man. You will not want to put it down, I promise. So, uh, so let's kind of move on here, um, to, uh, cigar store groaners. Uh, you know, the, those, uh, demonstrative stereotypical tropes that you commonly see in movie and television programs that, that feature indigenous characters or themes or storylines, And I call them groaners because each time I see one, you know, um, they sporadically cause me to sometimes groan out loud or at least snicker maybe with some juvenile expectancy. (laughs) But uh, you might have your own, and I'm sure that you do. But here are my top ten list of commonly seen groaners in native films. Number one, Drunk Indian. Then zero. It's a Skoden miracle. Um, And I'll do you one even better than that. Not one native character consumed a single drop of alcohol in this film, nor is it even mentioned in this entire movie. So, yeah, kudos to the screenwriter there. Uh, Does the lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend? Uh, No. The lead character here is Peter McGuire. And in the book, um, I would say that Peter is probably Arthur's friend. Maybe not his best friend, but he's his friend. Um, But he is not Arthur's best friend by any stretch of the imagination in this film. So is there a medicine man, shaman, and then bonus points if the lead character goes on a spiritual journey? 
know unless you count Wilf, but I don't really count Wilf. He doesn't really call himself a, a shaman or a medicine man, and Arthur doesn't really refer to him as a as a medicine man or anything like that. Even in the book, um, Wilf is not a medicine man, even though that's the whole reason that um, McGuire goes there in the first place to do a report on it. But um, Peter, I guess, does go on a spiritual quest. But it's pretty ambiguous throughout the entire movie. I mean, even right up until the final act. So I'm going to say no on that. Is the antigon as uh, the antic? <laughs> I can't talk. Is the antagonist white or bonus points if he or she turns out to be the hero? And I'm going to say yes because every white person in this movie, including our lead character, is uh, you know is is the antagonist. This is a complete anti-hero film. There's no question about it. Um, is there a native turncoat or sellout? Nope. Uh, is there a bar fight? Not at all. Once again, no alcohol in this film. Uh, is there mention of peyote or hallucinogenic drugs? Nope. Did the character use any kind of racial names or get called anything inappropriate? Kind of. I mean, Ricketts refers to Arthur as a drunken Indian. Um, but that's kind of pushing it, I guess. I mean, that's... I don't know. I'm going to give it a half a groan, I guess. Uh, is there mention of a scalping? Um, yes, but again, it was used by a native character in a um, very cognizant manner. So I'm going to say that doesn't count. So bonus groans. Um, was there an eagle screech in the movie? I think that there was, um, but I don't remember. Um, I think there might have been one when they were on the cliff, but I don't really remember. So I'm going to say no. Um, were any female characters the subject of any type of abuse? Be it verbal, physical, or sexual, yes, but not native, uh, not native women, and not that that's okay with women in general. But I'm just saying, um, as far as native portrayals in film, so uh, I'm going to have to say yes. So, are you ready for the total? Are you ready? One and a half groans. That is a new record, the lowest score of any film that we have done thus far. So congratulations to uh, uh, Bugoski, Bugoski, uh, congratulations to Rob Forsyth. Well done, well done, well done, well done. So there you have it. Uh, that is the Skoden review of 1991's Clear Cut. I broke this up into uh, a two parts. Thank God, right? Because this is still a two-hour-plus episode. But there was a lot to unpack here, so don't don't hate me too much. Um, there is a lot of interesting things about this film, and we may even have to revisit this film once I get that Severin set because, like I said, there's a lot of supplemental features um, in that box set, and I just can't wait to dive into that. And I was sort of hoping that I would have that thing by now, but unfortunately, um, you know, snail mail is, is – they call it snail mail for a reason, you know. But uh, thank you guys so much for, for listening. Maro, uh, make sure if you if you like what you hear to go to iTunes um, and, and, and rate and review this podcast. Make sure you are sharing this podcast with, with friends and neighbors. Tell them all about us. Tell them where they can find us. Don't forget to head to the Instagram page at Skoden's uh, underscore cinema. Uh, find us on Facebook. Um, you know, Hit me up if you have any questions or maybe you have some ideas for some films you would like to see me cover or overanalyze. Let me know. we got a lot of fun things coming up in the next couple of months. Uh, I'm going to be doing War Party next. Uh, this is another film that came out uh, like in 1992. So 
right after Dances with Wolves, you had all of these films, kind of like um, these native sympathy films uh, that were being kind of rushed to the cinema. And uh, that was another War Party is another one that um, is kind of hard to come by. It is available on YouTube if you want to check it out. Um, but it was had a lot of controversy when it was released as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm also going to be um, on the zeros uh, on the episodes that end with zero on the on the 20th episode. I'm going to try to uh, maybe do some things a little different. I'm going to be covering some some native adjacent films. Um, we're going to be doing some uh, Bigfoot films, and I have a friend of mine named um, Chris Hill who's going to come on the show and tell us some of those gold hunka stories uh, about Bigfoot, and I'll tell you guys all about Estajipko, and uh, yeah, we'll get into that, so I'm excited. And I'm also thinking about trying to cover uh, just some of these unknown hidden gems uh, of action films from the 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s. And so I'll be maybe uh, bringing uh, some reviews uh, to those films. And again, if you like what you hear, if you think this is a great idea or a terrible idea, let me know. I appreciate any kind of feedback that you are willing to share. So... And if you are still hungry for more native content, then you are in luck. There is a wealth of native podcasts out there, ranging from Toke Signals to Oki Podcast to the MacNez and, and East Society Network to Native Chalk Talk to This Land to The Cuts with Sterling Harjo to Red Road Rebellion to uh, uh, Let's Get Weird. I mean, there are a ton of native podcasts out there that you should be listening to. But there's one in particular that I want to talk to you about, um, and that is Native Film Talk. And I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but um, uh, Ian over at Native Film Talk has put together such an amazing show where he really goes into uh, Native representation and its portrayal on screen. Uh, He is so sharp. He is so together. He has such a professional show. And I might be probably like the fifth or sixth uh, most popular Native film uh, podcast on the internet. And I'm okay with that because as long as I'm following people like Ian, um, you know, who who are work you know, so tirelessly, uh, to, 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 you know, make sure that, that representation and the way that native people are, are presented in screen are, are accurate. Um, you know, my hat's off to him. So, um, right now he's on a little bit of a break, um, but, um, he will be back. So make sure you check out his show. Uh, I think it is available on all, uh, podcast, uh, platform. Maro, Jehe Jathis.